Welcome to the first ever episode of Fearless. I decided to record this podcast because I had felt that fear is something that we don't talk about often enough. And when you get people to be really honest about fears they've had in their life and how they've worked through them, the challenges they've had to overcome them, it makes us feel we can do it too. It makes me feel that anyway. And I have had a lot of fear in my life and it's driven a lot of my thought process. And then when I've worked through that fear or I've listened to somebody who's inspired me, it's helped me move forward and I've used some of those tools. So in this podcast, I'm bringing to you different guests who have had very different experiences with fear. And some are going to be well-known people and some people who are just very powerful people in their own right from what they've achieved in their life and who I had no idea of the kind of fears they'd actually gone through. My first guest is Tan France, who lots of you all know as a fashion guru, and he is one of the Fab Five on Queer Eye. That's where he really got to be known publicly. And he also presented Next in Fashion, and he's doing Say Yes to the Dress. But there's a lot behind Tan France, and he was one of the first South Asian gay men from Muslim background who was in the public arena, and I think that held a lot of responsibility for him. And he felt very judged. And it's how he's used the negatives in his life in a way to work through things. And there's so many angles to his life I want to explore because, you know, you always see somebody's biog and they kind of put in there just the quick, salient, most important points. And it's always, I want to get under the bonnet. And there's big gaps as well. Like, I want to know, how did he get to America? Because... It's like Tan France didn't exist before he's in America. So what happened to him before? I'd love to know that. And he's obviously a very strong person. So I want to see what has fueled that strength in him. How has he got to the stage of being a really strong, incredibly confident person who I think on screen and off screen is going to show that same strength? It's about us discovering his journey, what motivates him, what his biggest fears have been in his life, because this is about facing your fears and working through them. And the more we can listen to people who we feel have had real challenges in their life and see how they work through them, the more we can feel inspired in our life for how we might do things. And that's what I hope that this podcast will bring to you. So I've just heard that he's arrived upstairs. Let's go meet him. I can't help but want to interview you. Well, we can interview, we can chat to each other. (laughs) Because I think when I was reading all your notes and prepping to chat to you, I was thinking, what are the things I most want to ask you? Because it's like we can go down this well-oiled path of autopilot, you and I, because we've been interviewed so many times. And I just thought, I don't want to have that conversation with you. And I was thinking, okay, what do I really want to know? But so just... Oh, good, because I'm so sick of the same questions over and over again. Okay, so you know what I really want to know? Yeah. When in your life, when you were in the business world, because I have done this and I want to know if you've done this too, have you fudged your CV to get a better job? And what was it? Oh, my gosh, so much. Okay. Here's the thing. I think everyone fudges their CV a little bit. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, I think you're not that smart. Like you should. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you do that? I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't fudged my CV. So when I first started working retail, I was probably 21-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to get into retail because I wanted to be a visual merchandiser. So mm-hmm. I started working for a company called Bershka. Is that still a thing? Bershka is a thing. Yeah. Okay. We don't have it in the US. As a sales assistant. Yes. And let's not fudge CV now because I know. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Actually, I was applying for the department manager of menswear. Right. So I wasn't applying for a sales associate yeah. job because I was already a manager at a call center. So I thought I've got managerial skills. Oh, I, I want to go back there. Oh, okay. So 
What's your first proper job? My first job is different from my first proper job. My first job was I was hired at a bookstore in a mall to read books to children. And I did that for about seven or eight months, uh-huh. part-time, just on the weekends. Yeah. And then I quit quite dramatically. Why? Would, Why? To get a job back in the day in the 90s as a 15-year-old, you had to get your parents' permission. Mm-hmm. And so I got my parents' permission. And I think the two women that were my main bosses didn't respect me. And I wasn't a typical 15-year-old at all. Mm-hmm. I was raised by my elder siblings and I felt like I was a lot more mature and I truly was more mature. I can look back in hindsight thinking or, or objectively thinking, was I or was I just a trumped up kid thinking he was something special? No, I, I had maturity like none of my peers. Mm. And so my bosses would speak to me quite disrespectfully. And then finally, on my last day, I said, I know you think I'm a stupid child. You run your store really badly. And all you've done is teach me how to not manage people, how to be a good boss. And it's, it ain't you. Mm -hmm. I felt bad because I did it in front of a bunch of kids, but I came for her. And then I said, I'm done. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm not giving you notice. I'm out. And then across the street was a BT call center. Mm -hmm. In Doncaster, that was like the main thing that people in their late teens, early 20s did. It was the main industry we had was call center work. Mm -hmm. And so I walked over and said, do you have any jobs? I love anything you've got. And they said, actually, yeah, we have a job for an outbound call person. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed. And I think one of my great skills is I'm a natural salesman, Mm -hmm. a natural salesperson. I can talk to people. I think that's the greatest skill a salesperson can have is just being able to relate to anyone. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, within the first year and a half, I became a manager. At 17, I became a manager of the team. No one else on the team was under 25, but I I felt like I deserved that job. Did they know your age? They did. Because that is they like did. crazy young and there's a big yeah. corporate company in there. Yeah. I feel if I met you then, Tan, I would see, I think, who you were then. Yeah. I see, I see that development. I'm not that different a person now. I'm really not. Inwardly. Uh, inwardly, uh, inwardly you're not, but outwardly. Yeah. yeah. That, but yes, you know, Like going from that to, because always, I think what I, why I want to ask you, and going back now to that kind of, retail manager and, and and you always sort of say you were Zara Chanel and Selfridges, all right? And then you suddenly go to America. So that to me, I never get, I never see the details in that. Yeah, you don't. And I want to know why not. Um, no one's ever right. asked me. I want to ask um, you. And so I'm glad you are asking me. I always knew I wanted to leave. Always, always knew I wanted to get out of here. And so I was already working temporarily in America mm-hmm. at Zara there. How? Because you you don't have a US passport. No, it so was how? you can do a short term contract, and so I didn't have to arrange any of it. Inditex mm-hmm. arranged all of it, and so it was a short term contract for six months, and it was for that specific job only. So if I lost that okay. job, you, you wouldn't lose have your it. visa. Like your visa was based on that job. Yes. And how did you end up at Zara? So Zara yeah. was the point which got you across the Atlantic. Yes. So what were you doing in Zara? Where? For how long? I want to know. It you know my relationship. Yeah. Loving so, and hate Zara. I know, yeah. yeah. I do still love Zara. Yeah. I know they mass-produce products. I know, but let's, we, we both know we secretly love it. Basically. I love it. I do. Yeah. Anyway, I had my job at Bershka. I was doing well at Bershka. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to get over to Zara. But the only opportunity in visual merchandising wasn't there. It wasn't in the UK. Mm-hmm. I knew a job was coming up in, in New York. And so I, I asked if I could go and do that. So it was just 
for their menswear department. It was a yeah. really simple job. And to do a, what? Visual merchandise visual in, merchandising. in New York? Or yeah, in the, one of the in New the York one stores. On, on Fifth. On Fifth. And I didn't last the whole six months. Mm. I only lasted three and a half months because I had made my decision to not stay in New York. I wanted to move to Utah. Okay, so so there's something that's made you go to America. And I just yeah. want to go back. There's something that makes you want to leave England. Oh, gosh. Real talk, the thing that made me want to leave the UK was very simple. I was sick of being single and undateable in England, in Manchester, in the north. I would go out to... Have you ever been to the gay village in Manchester? Do you know what that is? Yeah, I went once with Susanna years ago. Yeah. Okay, there yeah. was, there's a street called Canal Street. Yeah. Things may have changed. Whenever I speak about this kind of stuff, the queens come for me. But 20-something years ago, when I was in Manchester... No one was wanting to date an Asian person. We weren't the kind of people that were desirable to take home to your family. And so my issue was, gosh, I hope my family never listened to this because they think, I would like to believe that they still think I'm a virgin. Um, back in the day, they would be willing to sleep with you, very few, but every now and then you'd get somebody who'd say, we can sleep together, but no one can know. And I don't know. I honestly. And don't... this would be a white man. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, two of the people that I dated slightly longer term said, "I love you. We get along great. Mm. We should absolutely have a long term relationship." But when it came to getting to know their family in any way, they didn't want people to know. They didn't want their families to know. And I, I, I could never understand that. But I made my peace with it. But then you just said to me. Your parents still think you're a virgin, so you didn't want them to know. <laughs> no, did you? my family knew I was dating. I just didn't talk about my sex life, and so my family knew I was out. They knew I was dating. They knew but, I was. But they don't want to feel like... you're having sex. Yeah, still but, but aged. That... How old? Forty. Okay. However, that's not just me. It's with all my siblings. We're very Muslim, so we never ever talk, talk about, about sex. sex. Ever, ever, ever. It's so just more. A... It was. A, it's a, it's a, a religious thing. Definitely not. Uh, he's gay thing. And so I had real issue with the fact that there was so much shame around dating my people. Mm -hmm. And there were only a few South Asians who were brave enough to be out in Manchester and on Canal Street. And I spoke to them. Every one of them had the same experience. Mm. They can sleep with you every now and then, but they definitely can't show publicly that they're into you or that they might be dating you. And so I was just sick of that. If I take you back to that store where you're reading the books something that your parents must have done must have given you maybe because you'll be brought up by siblings who are older sisters who are brilliant yeah upbringers yeah. okay that you had confidence in yourself because the yeah. way you dealt in that bookstore was like mm -hmm. hey don't yeah. mess me around yeah so then to have that and then to have people who totally marginalized mm -hmm. that must have been so horrid oh yeah as a person i felt confident as a person who wasn't interested in romance, that part of my life, perfectly confident. Mm. I knew my ability. I knew I wasn't like other people my age. But when it came to the dating world, I had no confidence. Mm. And, and that was knocked out of me by everyone in my community when I was younger, people at school, people in my employment, just reminding us that we weren't quite worthy of any real success, whether that's in employment or schooling or relationships. Mm. And so my family made me feel powerful. My family made me feel strong and willing to stand up for myself and actually quite an aggressive person. Mm. But outside of the house, when it came to really functioning in society, no one was willing to give me a chance. And so in stark contrast, I went to America and this is not the experience for many other people of color, especially the black community. But you, I went to America and I felt 
the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Th- they saw power in the fact that I wasn't like everybody else. And they saw me as exotic. The English accent, as you, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, does really well in America. Yeah. They see you as smart and successful, even though you can be thick as pig shit. If you've got an mm-hmm. English accent, you're special. And so that's why uh, after living with that my whole life in England, I have this glimmer of hope in America. Mm. Why wouldn't I go for that? So then you're there, you decide, I had this where it took me a while to think, did I deserve that job? And I was in it six months and I think, thought I could actually do better. So yeah. I think that's where you're at with this Zara merchandising. Yeah. So I was applying for the manager's position. And so I knew the person who was hiring for this job and they said, you're, you're not going to be able to get it because you've you've not got any retail experience. Mm-hmm. Even though you're a manager at a call center, you're not a manager in retail. And so... I fudged my CV mm-hmm. and pretended I'd been working in retail at the same time as working at a call center. And they never checked. They did, but I put some random white friend as my reference. And they, and they called your white friend. Yeah. Who said he worked with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. This is this is like this is I mean, who listening hasn't fudged? Yeah. Okay. If it was a major fudge, I might feel a little different about it. Mm-hmm. But I was a manager and I really liked clothes and I was comfortable with clothes. Why not? Mm. And if it wasn't for that decision, if it wasn't my good friend, I wouldn't have gotten to this point now. So I don't feel bad about it. If you are very much deceiving people for a job that you are absolutely not qualified for, problem. Mm -hmm. If you know that the only issue is that you haven't worked with clothes, but you've managed people and the job is to manage people, fine. Yeah. I don't feel guilty about it. Did you know your husband before you moved there? I did not. You didn't? Uh-uh. When did you meet your husband? I met my husband in 2008. I had already been to Utah a few times. The... Why Utah? So my... Because I've been to Utah, right? Don't even. No, I really... <laughs> it's gorgeous. I, I really, you know, no, I love it. I, I've, yeah. I've been to Lake Powell, which I find yeah, so gorgeous. beautiful. And I've been to the Amman there, which... Oh, it's um, gorgeous. Friends of mine have there and it's it's like the most amazing incredible if you've never been there I just want to do a, the, the, the tourist pitch for Utah and Lake Powell but I think what's really interesting Tan is this you've got two very extreme opposites I would say mm-hmm. in some instances in religion having an impact on your life in terms of wider family members yeah and I mean what drew you to Utah was it you what your husband first that no. you it wasn't so, so what was it okay I'm gonna take us back a little bit to Manchester yeah that was when I was dating my last partner before my husband. And the guys I had dated beforehand, they were all heavy drinkers. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a heavy drinker. I started drinking for a short while because of one of them and I hated it. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't for me. I don't like the taste, don't mm-hmm. like the feeling the next day. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was performative. It just wasn't in me. I was mm-hmm. raised very religious. And so I always thought, well, there's always something about a partner that you just don't like or you have to put up with. Mm-hmm. You just have to contend with the fact that he's a drunk. For most people, he wouldn't be seen as that. But for me, who didn't drink alcohol, yeah. he was a lot. He was always drunk. Yeah. And so I went to this place, Utah, and I I met the Mormons. But but like, how? Did you go for a weekend? What? Yes. My okay. housemate in New York, my flatmate who I didn't know before mm-hmm. I moved there, was a former Mormon gay dude. Mm-hmm. There was no romantic interest uh, between us at all. But he was going back to his home state of Utah. I'd never even heard the word Utah. I'd never heard the word Mormon. I assumed they were the Amish. And so he was going back and he said, would you like to check out another state? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Be on the weekend. Why Mm -hmm. not? And so I went to Utah and within the first hour or so, 
it was so different from anything I'd ever mm. experienced. I was a Yorkshire boy and suddenly I was surrounded by these gorgeous mountains and these boys that were hot. Like Utah folk really, really care about appearance, which may not be a great thing. But for a boy who wants to date, the hot boys were really exciting and enticing. Are the hot boys very white and blonde? They were mostly white Mm -hmm. when I first went to Utah. 20 years, that's changed a lot. 23 years, that's changed a lot. And so I went to a restaurant uh, with my friend and I got hit on a couple of times. And I just thought, oh, these dudes don't drink. Mm. And that was my major issue with Mm -hmm. the guys I was dating in England. These guys don't drink and they're hot. And American hot is like movie star hot. And so I was getting hit on by dudes that would never, ever dream of dating me in England. They were like the nines and tens as far as I was concerned in England. And I just couldn't believe that they were interested. Yeah. They were like the literal poster boys. Yeah. The guys who... See in a magazine and think that was... Yeah, like an underwear magazine. Yeah. Like, oh my God, yeah. this dude's into me. And I was bringing brown skin to the table. And they were interested in that. Yeah. yeah. It was and so exotic. Different. Yeah. And when you have Premium. a sea of white... Yeah. When you have a sea of white and then this one brown dude at the bar who speaks with an English accent... Gold. Yeah. And you went from Woolies to Chanel. Yeah, that's exactly you know? it. Yeah. And so I started dating in, in Salt Lake and they were so proud to show me off. I can't believe that I got this prized bull. And so I... I, I you fell I, in love. Yeah. I fell in love with the culture first. I fell in love with the hot boys second. I gathered a group of friends. I, I made friends really easy. I'm a very sociable person, mm. always have been. Mm. And so making friends wasn't hard. And then a couple of years later, I was going back every three months or so. Every chance I'd get from England, I would go to Utah on a short trip. And then on one of my trips, I met my husband. And I thought, there's no way this dude's interested in me. And I can't date. I don't want to date. I want to sleep my way across America. I'm having way too much fun being single, sleeping with dudes I would never dream would be interested. And so I I don't want to date. And he really wanted to go out on a date. And he'd just come out. He was a Mormon. Mm -hmm. He didn't know how he was going to reconcile his sexuality and his religion. And he decided to take a a leap and uh, asked me out. Mm -hmm. I was the first person he had properly asked out and properly dated, properly kissed and probably did anything with. And he's still my husband. And he's still my favorite person in the world. It's very romantic. Yeah, I love it. It's very innocent and pure. Mm -hmm. There's something kind of very, you know, when we've kind of led a life for some stage of our life where we've just gobbled life up. Yeah. There's something very nice about coming to back to purity and cleanness. Yeah. Freshness and newness. I think it's really something yeah. simple. Yeah, like life gets complicated. Even before all of this, life was life's complicated for everyone. It's really nice to have someone where life just seems easy and simple. Mm-hmm. We still say please and thank you for everything. Mm-hmm. I'm still his biggest champion. He's still mine after 15 years. So yeah. I want to take you back because this is called Fearless. This podcast, and it is all about how people break through their most fearful things. But what is a time in your life where you felt most fearful? The time I felt most fearful was a two-parter. When I got the show, Queer Eye, before the show came out, I was fearful because I hadn't told my family. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really scared of what that was going to do to my family. And my greatest fear in my life was always that I might lose my family one day because of my actions. They know you're gay. Yeah. They know you 
mm-hmm. all elements of mm-hmm. your life. Is it the fact that they know it, but they don't feel that their business should be other people's business? 100. Okay. So it's like me when I went into rehab. It was like they knew I'd gone to rehab, but my mother didn't tell any of her friends because it was embarrassing. That's exactly okay. it. It's the shame that you bring on the family when the community knows what your child is doing or what your sibling is doing. And so Did you, you think at the time when it went out in the States, because your parents don't watch American telly. Uh-uh. So did you worry it might come to England one day? Did you project, like when you're fearful, mm. do you project that fear a lot as to where it will go? And that's when you know you're really scared because it yeah. runs away with oh, you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So where did it run away to? What was the kind of thing that unraveled in your head? So in my head, it was that they were going to find out, the community was going to find out and that I would eventually lose them and that they would choose to not have me in their life. This was a reasonable fear considering that my community doesn't do this. There's a reason why you don't often see Muslims in particular on TV. They're not usually desperately clawing to get to the place that I was going to be in because they know that there's going to be a lot of judgment from the community and from people outside the community. Mm-hmm. And so my the the fear was that they will find out, everybody else will find out, they will say, we need to do all we can to mitigate this. So if we tell our friends and family, we've rejected him, he's cut off. We've got, we're no part of this sin, drama, whatever. So there's no point in judging us. It's got nothing to do with us anymore. That was my greatest fear. I've been close to my family my entire life. I still call my sister three times a week. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a lie. Every day. I wanted to sound less pathetic. Every day. A couple of hours a day. I needed them. I needed my support yeah. system, but I also wanted to do this show. Mm-hmm. It was a really weird feeling of, I want something, but this could completely implode. So did you tell them then? I shot the show. Mm-hmm. I called them regularly as I always did. And I pretended that I was at my regular business. Mm-hmm. Never told them what was going on, which was a very strange feeling. Thinking this is probably going to be a tiny show. Even though Netflix said it was going to be a big show, what did you they know? You just didn't know, and it was yeah. right at the beginning it, of it. Well, yeah. because it was called Queer Eye, it was a gay show. I thought, the gays will watch. My family don't have anything to do with the gays. Yeah. They will never see this show. Yeah. And so it's not going to be the big thing that Netflix thinks it's going to be. And we were the first unscripted show at Netflix. I'm like, no one watches Netflix for unscripted. Yeah. So I have the luxury of experiencing this, mm-hmm. being able to tell my kids, my grandkids, that there was this summer where I did something wild, Mm. but my family and our community never need to hear about Mm. it. And then after the show got edited, Netflix got really excited. And then there was a global press push. I spoke to the PR team at Netflix. They knew my family didn't know. And they had to come to Jesus with me to say, hey, just so you know, your family live in Manchester, right? Uh Uh-huh. There are going to be billboards in Manchester. That we this isn't going to be a small project. We mm-hmm. are committing so much to this show. Yeah, it has to succeed globally. They so will. You're going to make the call. You made the call. I didn't make a call. You did. I sent an email. I was too pussy to do. Really? Why didn't you make a call? Um, I was really scared. I was really, really scared okay. of their reaction. And did I, you tell your sister first or your parents? I told everyone on the same in the same moment. I sent a mass email. And and what was her response? Initially, shock mm-hmm. and a lot of anger. How could you do this? Why would you do this? This is not what our people do. You're going to bring such shame on the family. What are we going to tell our neighbours? What are we going to tell the extended family? There was all of that. Oh, oh my God. Because I'm like thinking you kind of exaggerated it, but I'm really... No. That's like... I. Th- so the show came out in February. We didn't speak again until late July. 
So this was all said via email and text. I didn't want to talk to anyone because I knew how unhappy they were. And then a couple of days later, I got a call from my brother saying how angry he was, my eldest, saying how angry he was. And then we don't know if we're going to be able to bounce back from this. And so I thought, okay, I'm losing my family. And I made it very clear, look, I understand that you are really unhappy. There's nothing I can do at this point. It's coming out. Mm -hmm. In a couple of days, this show's out. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember, actually, I can't remember if the show was out that day. And a couple of days later, we were going to Australia for a, a press tour. And on that morning of the press tour, they decided we need to cease contact for a while. We just need to figure out what the heck we're going to do. And for me, who has spoken to his family almost every day, mm. one of the worst things I've ever experienced, I was in tears getting ready for the airport. My whole flight, I have a castmate called Anthony, who's one of my best friends, had to console me the entire, there's a long flight to Australia. I was mm. in tears almost the whole flight. I had to do a whole press tour thinking I've lost the most important thing to me just because I wanted this incredibly selfish thing of an experience that mm. was so wild. But thankfully, a few months later, over the next few months, we managed to reconcile. But yeah, it was definitely the hardest six months of my life. Hmm. The thought of losing family forever is... Yeah. Yeah. Especially when care. by then also you didn't have a family of your own. So now yeah. you have a family of your own. Mm. Was your mum there at the birth of your son? I wasn't at the birth of my you son. You weren't. So, so when did you... I was then, stuck in England. <laughs> okay. So that, why the fuck were you stuck in England? Uh, the, our baby came seven and a half weeks early. Mm. I was here shooting a show. We never expected him to come so early. And then it was during COVID and they wouldn't let me get on a flight without COVID. It was yeah. bullshit. All bullshit. Yeah. So when did you finally introduce your son to your family? Immediately when I first met my son, within the first few minutes, I FaceTimed my family. They were so excited. And it's amazing how having a child changed my relationship with them completely. We were already great. Me having a son with my husband changed the game completely. Then they really wanted to be immersed in our life, which was so nice. So it's like it changed everything. Everything. Changed For my everything. family and my husband's family, yeah. uh, they, uh, they would keep it to themselves mostly. Yes, the public knew. Yes, some of the community knew. But any detail they wouldn't share mm -hmm. outside the immediate family. Now my family will show his picture to anyone who will look which is so nice. And so they insisted on coming to America. They wanted to spend time with him. They call him almost every day not to speak to me anymore. It's to see my son. And so, yeah, they're really immersed That's in his so life. Sweet. Yeah, they're obsessed. So future fears. What you're most scared about in the future? This is going to sound ridiculous because it's not at all what we're talking about or probably what you'd care to hear because it's the fear, I think, that every parent who loves their child has. My only fear is the safety and the health of my child. Mm. I just, that, 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 and actually, and my husband. My greatest fear before having my son was that my husband would pass before me. And I, just, I know mm. I will struggle, really struggle to handle that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, now it's my son. If God forbid mm. anything were to happen to him, I, I don't I know. know. I don't even like to talk about it. Talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Going back to your partner, because. Yeah. It's interesting the wording you use, Tan, of that he will pass. How religious are you? Not super religious. I mean, I stick to many of the... I'm, I, I say I'm culturally religious. I celebrate Eid. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't go to clubs. I, those, okay, not yeah. that. So then, like, let's say something really shitty is happening. I pray. You do pray. I do. So what do you pray to? God, Allah. 
It's not just a power greater than yourself. Absolutely not. It is God. 100. Right. And it is Allah. It's not nope. the Latter-day Saints nope. interpretation not. of God. No. I, uh, to be Muslim, one of the main requirements is that you believe the oneness of Allah. And I will always believe that. I can't, I can't not. It's, I, I don't know how that's physically possible for me mm-hmm. to not believe in that. When did you last pray about something? Just before I flew here, I prayed that I would make it here okay and that I would make it home safely for my son. And where did you have that prayer? Over my son whilst he was sleeping. We hold our hands up in a certain way. Do you do it every time you leave? Yeah. Yeah. But still, not very religious. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's a fear. It's that yeah. sort of what's the most heart-rendering thing yeah. is that. Yeah. You know, it's like codependency around children like yeah. my daughter experienced trauma at 10 11 when she lost her dad and so I always overthink how she might feel in the situation I actually do understand that I lost my father when I was 13 oh, and so that's that. why I pray for my son that he doesn't have to go through what yeah. I went through yeah what do you think impact had on you that you lost your dad at that age do you have brothers <laughs> I do I have two brothers yeah, I love my brothers. Younger or older? Older. I'm the youngest of my siblings. Okay. The impact, you know, it just made me really determined. My dad was an immigrant mm-hmm. and he wanted to create a success for himself to be able to take care of his family. And all he wanted was to have children who were happy, mm-hmm. got married to Asians, <laughs> to Muslims, um, and had children. He wanted to see his grandchildren. And he desperately wanted to see success in his businesses because his family came to England with nothing. Did they come after partition? They did, yeah. yeah. And he wanted to show that even though he was living in a country that was predominantly white, he could achieve success and he wasn't beholden to the people who thought that he was, that we were pieces of shit. And did he succeed? He died at 47. He really wanted, he did, he he created a, a life for us that was comfortable for us. We were poor by everyone else's standards. But we were comfortable. We had mm-hmm. food on the table. We had mm-hmm. clean clothes on our backs. But he, his dream was to always retire by 50 so he could just focus on his kids because my mom and dad worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. And so he just wanted to be able to cut back from work and just focus on his family. But he died before then. He died at 47. And How so did he die? He died of a heart attack uh, in our home. He had diabetes. He had diabetes for a long time. He used to go for dialysis. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I don't feel a lot of emotion about it at this point. It's been so long. And quite frankly, I don't remember my dad very well. Mm-hmm. It's insane because I wasn't a child child when he passed. But it's amazing how you forget so much. So I remember lovely memories, but that's all really. Mm. And then when he passed away, I just thought, I want to do something where... If I don't live to my dad's age, I want to know that I could be with my son and take care of my kids. And so I want to try and retire at 40. And so that was always my goal. So what impact did he have? It made me really ambitious and really, really driven. And I spoke to my mom when I was writing my book and I said, what What did you notice about me that was different from your other kids? And she said, your dad dying affected you in a very odd way and your siblings went through the normal teen angst little shits rebellious Mm -hmm. you were so determined you turned into a different person you were i was a flighty kid i was always away with the fairies because i was a fairy but i was always away with the fairies i always wanted to play dress up i always wanted to do this shit that shit and i just wanted to play and have fun and she said once your dad died you turned into the most serious kid i'd ever known so 
let's talk about financial fear because that is really a continuation of this conversation yeah. about your dad. You know, you, you work and then you get to a stage where you're doing retail and then you're having a clothing range and doing that with Nordstrom. And then you, you retire early. What is yeah. enough money that you felt you could sort of, in brackets, retire? Yeah. It was millions, but it wasn't tens of millions. Mm -hmm. It was enough for me to buy a house, a nice house, mm -hmm. that I could be really proud of. It was my dream home at the time. And enough that I thought, if I never work again, I'll buy a bunch of apartments, rent them out, and I will live off that rent. And mm -hmm. if, God forbid, we hit hard times, we'll sell some of them. Okay. And so it wasn't that I And was... this is buying property in Salt Lake City, not Salt in New Lake York. Salt Lake City, okay. yes. So also just how you didn't fully retire, did you? Well, I... And the ambition didn't fully leave you, did it? See, I, the plan was to... <laughs> truly, the plan was to retire. I never expected Netflix to come calling. Never in my wildest, wildest dreams. I truly. And so, yes, I retired temporarily. Was the plan to always retire? Absolutely. I thought I would consult maybe with businesses and, and teach them how to make money. But like your dad, if he hadn't died at 48, he would have he wouldn't, working. I know. He would have died working because I'm sorry, nobody liked that. I know. You know that. You know I that. Know. Okay. So you have this dream that you can put in this box because your father did die at 48, mm -hmm. but you are an element of your father. So yeah. you say you never knew Netflix came calling, but I feel there's, I feel there's more to it. I feel there's like... What do you want to be in your life? Where do you want to get to? What do you want to leave as your mark? All these things, turn, which are really important. No, it's really changed. Look, my goals have changed a lot now. I'm very ambitious in entertainment. But before that, I really did think if I sell my businesses and semi-retire, it was more semi-retire than fully because I wanted to consult. I wanted to manage these properties. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I wasn't going to do anything, but I wanted my life to be about raising my kids. Yeah. Like truly, truly, I wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. I wanted to homeschool them. I wanted to be the person that they saw every day mm -hmm. without a dad. Mm -hmm. I, I'd wanted kids since I was a kid. And so my greatest ambition was to just be able to provide for them and see them all day, every day. I Who's the stay-at-home dad now? My husband. Yeah, okay. I just, Which but, is infuriating. That, that Because when you met him, he was a pediatric nurse? Yes. Yeah. And both of us wanted the complete opposite of what we have now. Mm. He never wanted to be a stay-at-home parent. I wanted to be the stay-at-home parent. He was meant to be the the employee. And I'm often frustrated that I can't get rid of my ambition. That's, okay, let's really do it. Because you and I have this a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, am I a, a less of a workaholic now than I was? I don't know. But there is this drive mm -hmm. I cannot control. Yeah, I can't. Okay. You know, what how, do you think about it? You know how earlier I was saying I desperately wanted my family, but I also wanted my career and I should have just let the career go if I wanted to appease my family. That's the way it is now. It's mm. just a different family. It's my it's my child and my husband. I desperately want to be with them. I want to be home. But when I'm home, I still think about work. I yeah. fantasize about I have this idea and that idea. Mm -hmm. And I just think, gosh, this can't be all my life is, is just being at home. I, I would go stir crazy. Yeah. That doesn't diminish my love for my son or my husband. I just need to work. I feel like my purpose is to do something with my life other than just be at home. Mm -hmm. And that's not to denigrate anyone who's a stay-at-home parent. At it's time, just for you. At just times, I love it. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what is the biggest ambition you have in your life? 
not like to be a good parent. I don't hear that often. No, 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 It's like, you know what I mean? It's like, the funny thing is, that's so not where I was going to go. (laughs) So I had to think about my job here today, man. Right now, it changes a lot. But right now, my biggest aspiration is to create, um, I have a production company that we're building out massively this year. My aspiration is to create an Oscar winning project. That is literally my ambition. It's not about money. And I swear to God, this is true. None of this at this point is about money. We've got enough to not just be the comfortable we were when I was retired a few years ago. I could live a very happy life Mm -hmm. now. And that's not a brag. I'm basically, it's to say, I don't need this at this point. I fucking want it. All right. And so much of it is to prove to everyone there were God, there were so many people who didn't feel like I was going to be able to do this. And it's so nice every mm-hmm. project I get to think about those people thinking, and look at you, bitch. You've got <laughs> nothing. You would I now hear the whispers I, yeah, yeah, and look yeah, at me. Yeah. I really didn't expect you to say Oscar winning film yeah. because that's what you're talking about yeah. it's a film if it's an Oscar yes it could um, be a documentary short I really want to get into doc a, a heck of a lot in the production company are you the main driving force I am you are and are you surrounding yourself with talent or are you the talent surrounding yourself with uh, I, uh, a- expertise in the execution so we already have two productions underway we got an incredible investor recently who's a very very powerful person Mm -hmm. who is now helping with it all we're about to hire an executive that i interviewed a few days ago who's a very powerful executive of a major american network Mm -hmm. i am building out a team a very very strong team to hopefully get us the success we want so are you looking at something like reese weatherson yeah hello sunshine Sunshine. that's exactly yeah she's incredible What's really interesting is also the point in which you're at, because there you are with Queer Eye. Yes. Next in fashion, which I loved the fashion. Thank you. So then, why are you doing a British show, Say Yes Address? <sighs> Actually, many reasons. They asked me to do it, and initially when it came through my agents, I said, no, that's that's not for me. Because you felt it's only UK? It's going to stream in the UK initially, but it's also an American it show. It is. Okay, yeah. that's great. But sometimes I am a little bit jealous of the Brits when they get a show and I'm like, they would never give me that fucking job. And what I do you just, mean, get get a show in the UK? Yeah. Like, like a, let's say, for example, Joel Domit. Do you know who Joel Domit is? No. Okay. Upgrading. He's a host. He's a lovely, lovely man. Mm-hmm. Like, really and gorgeous. Yeah. Anyway, we did a, a celebrity bake-off thing together mm-hmm. and he had just gotten a job hosting a show called The Mass Singer. Mm-hmm. And with Davina McCall, they'd won a BAFTA. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so uh, he got that job. And as much as I thought, oh, that's nice of him, I didn't know him. And I just thought, I, I told ITV I, I was looking for work in the UK. <laughs> what else do I need to do to prove that I'm worthy of being hired in the UK? Yeah. That, that was infuriating to me. Um, they could have thought you were too big for the UK. No, no one. I know, but they could have done. Do you know what I mean? It's like he's now American. The Americans love him. Why would he do our show? They could have done that. I've asked every. Okay, we're going to go there. I uh, I've mentioned to every network in the UK, every major network in the UK. I would love to work in the UK. I'm available for hire. Mm-hmm. No one thinks I'm relatable to the to the British audience because I'm Asian. And a couple of them, and I won't say why, because I could get into legal trouble because I've been told not to say this anymore publicly. I can't be relatable to the British audience. And I've asked why. And they said, well, we've never had an Asian person on primetime television. 
And I can't tell you how fucking angry that made me. This is a reason why people like me aren't on primetime. And it's people like you. You don't believe that I am a viable option to mm -hmm. lead a show. And they say, well, you're not proven talent in the UK. Am I not? Queer Eye is one of the biggest shows in the UK. Mm -hmm. Next in Fashion was wildly successful in the mm -hmm. UK. And I'm one of the key players on both. What do you mean I'm not relatable to the mm -hmm. British audience? Mm -hmm. It drives me insane. Yeah, yeah. I still can't see it because I... I think of all the women who follow me and Trini London and everything, and they'd all love you. They love you already. Or person living under a rock doesn't know you. They'd love you. I just know that. So is it that we have an archaic system at the top somewhere which just is not actually in touch with who's actually watching telly? Yes. All right, which I think is part of the problem, mm -hmm. if we're just being candid, because, you know, when they talk about the demographic of who they feel is watching and who the advertisers are paying for and all this stuff, nothing adds up. Mm -hmm. But I just... I'd just like to say that I'd love to see you on UK telly. Thank you very much. Um, well, you will very soon. Yeah, I mean, we will. So when, when does Say Yes, The Dress come out? Say Yes, The Dress comes out in August. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually really proud of it. And I really pushed for certain things that made me feel really proud to do this in the UK. So when I was offered the job, I initially said no because I didn't want to make a show about white women in white dresses. It's not what my career has been at Netflix mm -hmm. or in the US. Mm -hmm. No one was going to make me do that for a living, regardless of how much money they offered. And then I went back to my agents to say, go back to them and say, if they'll make it my way, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, uh, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. And so we ha I had a call with the producers and they said, okay, can you tell us what you mean by your way? And I said, yeah, it's really easy. If I'm going to do a show in the UK, I want to show people who we are as a nation. We're not just white women who are looking for white dresses. There's got to be something else. And I'm telling you there's something else. My family would have loved to watch a show like that, but they didn't see themselves. And when I hear bullshit like, well, God, they've always got to have representation. I'm the perfect example of why it matters. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, when there's somebody who might think to call someone a Paki on the street, they think, oh, we like that Paki tan, though. And if we like him, maybe that other Paki's likable. And so I wanted to create a show that was diverse, where we didn't just have racial diversity. We had queer people on the show also, where I could say, they want to get married, too. They want to look yeah. beautiful, yeah. too. And if you want to do that, that's a show I will front. Mm -hmm. And thank God Discovery Plus was brave enough to say, We'd love to try that with you. Yeah. And I will say it's shocking to think no other UK network was willing to do something like that with me, yeah. who was willing to have me front show. It just shows, and I'm not trying to kiss Discovery's ass, they've done an incredible job mm -hmm. of giving power to this person who ordinarily would never be given power in this country yeah. and said, we trust your vision and we believe that showing these stories will actually do exactly what we need, which is to bring in an audience who is so massively underserved and actually could change our business. There's only so many white folks you can cater to before you've hit the wall. Mm -hmm. We've got all these other people yeah. in this country and it's good business sense. And, and at the moment, I think where it's at is, because I do this very small show on YouTube, which we do ourselves, our own budget and everything, and we do all different people and it's called the Trini Takeover Show. But we're doing somebody tomorrow who transitioned and they first came out working for us. So they're F to F or F to M? M to F. Okay. And they work in tech. And so I said to the team, 
how you are the conduit to tell a story to a traditional audience so they can you can open their eyes to stuff is the story here we need to tell. Because I think in the UK at the moment, we have kind of RuPaul's Drag Race, all right, or we have definitely emotive stories in our soap operas. Yeah. But in between that, there isn't much. And what exactly what you're talking about mm -hmm. is that, that why should it be on Discovery Plus as opposed to on BBC Two or Channel 4 mm -hmm. or wherever they're all heading? So I think it's a really good topic to bring up. And you want to always feel what is there that we can challenge because we yeah. should never stop challenging everything that and, we feel is important to move things forward. And I have the luxury of living in America but being from England. I understand what diverse programming means to a people, mm. how it impacts those people and what it means to a business and how it can affect your business in the most positive way. And so when you let me be on TV and any of my people be on TV and you just see us entertain, mm. we are a very entertaining people. Mm. South Asians are fucking loud, really loud. We've got yeah. big families. We're natural entertainers. If you let us just be, we will show you why you should love us. Yeah, our food might be a little bit different. You've co-opted it. Yeah, our style might be a little different. You've co-opted it. Mm -hmm. We as people are worth co-opting mm -hmm. to. Enjoy us. Mm -hmm. Like, don't just take those things that you feel might work and fit but into your life. But reject you as people. Yes. Yeah. Like, see our humanity first yeah. and foremost. And that, in my opinion, is the greatest achievement of Say Yes to the Dress. And my greatest achievement in my career is not Queer Eye. It's not Next in Fashion. They are, I'm so proud of them. And I love the work that we get to do. But... America was already diverse. Mm. We've been there. They've been doing this for a long time and they really do walk the walk. England needed it. Mm. And I think I was one of the very few people, South Asian people, in a position of power because the, England doesn't affect my success to be able to say, yeah. if you don't want to do it this way, you can fuck off. Yeah, it's good. It's so nice to have that voice. So I, the next question I'm going to ask you, you kind of nearly have answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway in case there's some other nugget there. Mm. But what makes you feel most empowered? At this point, gosh, we've talked about finances and I'm so sorry if this is not the answer you were hoping for. The thing that makes me feel most empowered at this point is financial freedom. Oh, God, I'm so with you. <laughs> yeah. You were talking about how you went in for a meeting and how these men were sat. They still have the power, whether we like it or not. However, when you have financial freedom and you don't have to ask them for anything, they don't mm. affect my life in any way. I get to say, I know I'm more valuable to you than you are to me. Mm. So if you want so me... It's so empowering. It's so empowering. Mm. And I just think you want the money that I will bring to you. There's a reason why I keep getting work in entertainment in America. I know that I'm a great Mashly converter. Viable, yeah. And I know I sound like a fucking arrogant bastard. But let me tell you, it took years of listening to the bullshit racism and being told I wasn't enough, being told I wasn't worthy of all the success, where now I can say, watch me. Yeah. For people listening, because people listen to this to get know-how mm -hmm. into how to feel empowered and to feel fearless, mm -hmm. because there's lots of things we can do to feel fearless, you know. But what would you give as some advice to people? If they're feeling fear and it's stopping them moving forward, what would you say to them, Tan? I actually feel like I've got a perspective on this, again, because I don't live here and I live in the US and people really talk about feelings in, in the mm. US and they go to therapy and there's something about that that I just think makes them slightly less fearful. They will educate themselves on a subject that or a thing that is worrying them and then they will 
do all that they can to confront it. And I think that's the greatest bit of advice I can offer. When I was fearful of things in life, I learned as much as I could and then really try to put myself in that situation. I'm not talking about a damn spider. If you're scared of spiders, you don't need to be in a room mm. with a spider. I'm talking about real life shit. Mm -hmm. Like the term knowledge is power really is fair. And I do believe that. And it's the thing I think that got me to where I am. I wanted to learn as much as I could about everything I was doing to make myself the most powerful at it. And therefore I was less fearful in those situations. Yeah. And so if you're fearful of a situation, you're stressed about something, find a way to combat it and don't think, well, I'm scared of it. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to go there. Mm. And I think that's the real affliction of the Brits is that we just want to pretend it's not happening, ignore yeah. it and just hope it goes away. It yeah. doesn't. Or lack of knowledge makes us scared to think we could actually just learn it a bit. Yeah. And it's just, it's such a simple one. And I love it, Tan. And it's a really clear bit of advice. So, Tan France, thank you so much for coming on Fearless. Thank you so much. So lovely talking to you. Lovely talking to you. I was a bit nervous before I did this interview because I haven't met Tan before and I've seen him on TV. And I did feel that he was going to be his authentic self because I felt whenever I've watched him that that's somebody who's themselves. And I'd watched a few of his interviews before. So I was really conscious that I didn't want to ask him questions where he would go on to autopilot. And I think we had that conversation. And I love that we had that conversation. And I love just getting to know this side of him of what makes him tick and what motivates him. It's always fascinating for me to find out what motivates and drives somebody. And just seeing him talking about he didn't have so many memories of his dad dying at 13 and knowing my daughter also lost her dad a little bit younger than that. But obviously the effect it's had on him has been such a huge effect of seeing somebody who wanted something so much and they died before they could have it. And that is the lasting memory in a way of his dad. And he is a very driven man. He's a very ambitious man. One thing I didn't expect, he's a really financially savvy man. I love that. And also... He's very straightforward about advice, you know. It's about educating yourself and doing everything you can to confront it. He's He confronts head-on, Tan, I feel. He doesn't beat around the bush. And knowledge is power. So I got to know another side to Tan today, and I hope you did too. And thank you for listening. And we'll catch up again soon.